Our Father, we're blessed to be able to fellowship together, knowing that you're present here with us this morning. We're thankful, Lord, uh, yet that in this land that you have given to us, we have freedom to worship you, to come to fellowship together and to share around your word. And so, Lord, we ask that we will not take this for granted in any way, but that we will truly be people of thankful hearts. Teach us, Lord, to always be a people of thanksgiving. And Father, we're grateful for this past uh, day in which we celebrated thanksgiving as a, as a nation. And we know, Lord, for many it was not, did not have the meaning originally intended, but we're grateful, Lord, that you have called us to be your children and we can truly give the thanks that is due to your name. And so, Father, we trust you now to bless our study together and that your spirit will Again, be our teacher. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 16. I'd like to read the first six verses. Now Sari, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sari said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sari said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sari, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her whatever is good in your sight. So Sari treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. As we have noted, Abram and his wife were getting older. And as this happened and the promised son didn't come, they were becoming quite anxious, as we might well imagine. And of course, they were looking at the, uh, the whole situation from the human perspective, and we tend to do that, don't we? And there was no hope, it seemed, for a 75-year-old woman who had been barren all of her life to now become pregnant, at least humanly speaking. Her unfulfilled hope, plus this, as we talked about this last time, the stigma of barrenness. It, it's hard for us to even imagine how, how awful that was because in our day it, it's not thought of to be particularly anything because many people have no children, some elect to have no children. But this was considered to be a sign of prosperity. It was considered to be a sign of God's blessing. In fact, there are statements later in the Pentateuch where God says, uh, there will be no barrenness in the land if you walk faithfully with me. And even though that promise specifically had not yet been made, there was this, this sense that if one was barren, somehow the hand of God was against that person for evil. There had been disobedience somewhere in the life, it, some would think anyway, if this were the case. 
And so she was unfulfilled in her hope. This stigma was still weighing heavily upon her shoulder, and this caused her to look for another answer. And as we noted last week, the idea of a surrogate mother was not novel in this account. This had been practiced in the culture surrounding them. It was very common for the head of a clan or the head of a household to take a maid, a servant, and to impregnate that person and for the child to be born of that lady to become the legal child of the clan chief and his wife. This was a common practice and it was not unusual in that particular culture. But, as this passage notes, when Hagar found that she was pregnant, she said, Aha! I am what my mistress cannot be, pregnant, fruitful. And I will bring forth a child for my master, what my mistress could not even do. And as a result, she became contemptuous towards uh, Sari. And as I mentioned last time, the implication was here that she was contemptuous of her mistress as a woman and as a wife. In other words, that Sari had not been able to be the real woman that she should have been and was not able to be the wife that Abram needed. But the situation did not improve. The situation got worse, particularly for Sari. Because now, rather than, I mean, she was still barren. And on top of that, the one who was bearing her husband's child was looking down her nose at her mistress and was obviously not cooperating very well in doing her duties. So what seemed like a logical solution, a reasonable answer to the problem, turned out to be far less than that. It was unacceptable with God. And it proves the oft-repeated truth in Scripture that human effort, which is substituted for faith, results in disaster. I think we need to constantly remind ourselves, as the Scripture teaches us all, all the way from Genesis through Revelation, that uh, whenever God's commands are ignored or intentionally violated, the consequences are very serious. Uh, we, we have a tendency, I think, sometimes uh, to trivialize uh, violation of God's commands. We in the present world sometimes, particularly if we've been heavily influenced by Calvinism, have a tendency sometimes to believe that uh, we're on the straight and narrow and no matter what we do, everything's going to turn out okay in the end. And as, as a result, uh, we can become almost antinomian. And this is not at all what Scripture teaches. In fact, the apostles uh, frequently write against that very concept uh, in, in the New Testament. I think, as I, I think the last thing I mentioned last time in class was that we need to remember that God did not arbitrarily make up these commands. Our God is not capricious. If you've studied world religions and you've spent much time studying the various gods and goddesses of human history, you discover how capricious they are. Uh, you never knew what they were going to do next. Uh, they were simply a superhuman in the sense that everything humans did, they did in a bigger way. They got drunk in a worse way and, and they were licentious in a worse way even than human beings. But the God of Scripture is not at all like that. He, you know, as, as we, we know, He is a God who is immutable, unchangeable. 
and he is not capricious. And when he makes a command, it's a loving warning. It's the all-wise Heavenly Father telling us, if you want to live a, a, a joyful, healthy, contented life, do these things. Because he knows what will make us content. After all, he's our maker. And he knows what will make us miserable. And we seem to be able to find those things very quickly that will make us miserable. Because it's our nature, our very human nature, to be disobedient to the things of God. So God, because of his knowledge of the people that he had made, gave us the commandments which are truly written there for our good. Sometimes we look at them and say, oh God, why'd you, why'd you say that? I mean, if it just didn't say that, life would be so much easier. <laughs> but really, it wouldn't be. Because inside ourselves, we would be lacking in the deep-seated joy and contentment that is really what is important in life. Basic tranquility. If you read the ancient Greek philosophers, you find that one of the themes of, of uh, their writings was the goal of tranquility. And they made various approaches as to how you would get to tranquility. You know, some would say, well, it's based on knowledge. The more you know, the more tranquil your life will be. Others said, no, it's the more you deny yourself. The more you deny yourself, the more tranquil you'll be. Others argue, no, it's the more you give to yourself, the more you do, the more you give in to all of your desires, then that's where your tranquility and joy will come from. But God makes it so abundantly clear that obedience to his word, obedience to his command is what brings peace and joy and contentment and a sense of well-being. So when Abram ignored God's command here to cleave to his wife and to be one flesh with her, which he certainly knew because this had been carried down uh, at least by oral tradition uh, to this point. Yet when he chose to violate this and he added a second wife, he bought into the world system. And, and we see this happening today in the church. The church is more and more buying into the world system and accepting the world's attitude towards how homes ought to be and how marriages ought to be and how life ought to be. And as a result, there's a smaller and smaller distinctive between so many in the church and the world in which we live. But as you would imagine, what happened here was rather than tranquility coming, estrangement came. There began to be a rift between Abraham and his wife. They began to drift apart because of the wedge of Hagar and her pregnancy. Bitterness and anger began to become common emotions in the household, something I don't think they experienced much before. Now, we think about some other men of the Scripture, and we realize God did allow, for example, Jacob to have multiple wives, right? Jacob had four wives. We know David had at least 18 wives. And we know that Solomon outdid everybody. And uh, he had a thousand women in his life. I think I mentioned this once before, but I figured that out, that that meant in, in the course of his reign, he had to have a, you know, if, if you had an official wedding ceremony for everyone, he'd have been getting married every two weeks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty busy. <laughs> It's 
It's a good thing he had all that gold, I tell you. <laughs> sure kept a few preaches, uh, for a few priests rich, I would assume, you know, along the way. But certainly, uh, it didn't happen all that way. But as you look at Jacob's life, you look at David's life, you look at Solomon's uh, life, do you hear, in, in looking at their lives, do you discover the, the absolute epitome of happiness and tranquility? No, you don't. <laughs> There's fighting and friction and rancor. And uh, we, we know very care, uh, much the, uh, the uh, strife between Rachel and Leah as, as they uh, clashed for the favor of Jacob. And certainly the many wives of David were not real happy with the whole situation. And Solomon, I mean, psh, there were so many of them, they didn't even know who to be unhappy with, you know. <laughs> so these polygamous relationships, yes, God allowed them to happen. God didn't strike them dead for violating his command. God didn't push David off the throne or Solomon off the throne. But there was not the joy and the peace and the tranquility that would have been theirs had they done explicitly what the Scripture said. Because David knew and Solomon knew that God had said that the kings of Israel shall not multiply wives unto themselves. And yet they directly violated God's specific command. To violate or ignore the explicit command of God always leads to grief and unhappiness. There's no exception to that statement. To violate God or ignore God's commands always leads to grief and unhappiness. No matter what it might seem is happening in somebody else's life who is, quote, violating somebody's, uh, violating God's commands. Or what we see in the lives of some of the men and women of Scripture. Always there is grief and unhappiness. Sari now is far worse off than she ever was before. Her distress was so great that she placed the blame upon whom? Abram, it's your fault we're in this mess. Now, he was the spiritual and the physical head of this household. He was the chief. And it was he who had impregnated Hagar. Therefore, he was to blame. But, like Eve. And what's very interesting is, one commentator pointed out that the wording of this passage directly parallels the wording of Genesis in the account of the fall. And you see the, uh, how, how the, this one step led directly to the other, just as it did in the case of, of Adam and Eve. Um, like Eve, Sari is not blameless in this situation. But, like Adam... Abram should have rejected the suggestion from his wife out of hand. And he should have said, no, this isn't the way to go. Just be patient. God will do it his way and in his time. Let's trust him. That should have been his response. But you remember what his response was. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife. You know, it's, it's like there's no resistance there at all. Sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> See, he was acting in the flesh. He was not acting as the spiritual head of this household. He was not acting as the man who had actually had the vision from God himself. He was acting as if he were one of the you know, men in one of the uh, households around who didn't even believe in the God 
that he knew. Well, Abram, of course, like most husbands, wasn't particularly happy with his wife's complaining. And so he abandoned Hagar into his wife's hands. He reminded her that she is still your maid. This is not changed. Just because she has come to me as my second wife, or you have given her to me as my second wife, this does not mean that she is still not your maid. She is in your hands for you to do with her as you so choose. The concern for the expected child. What's happened to that now? You know, the whole thing was focused on having this child. And this child was to be the heir. And now suddenly, who seems to even care anymore? Certainly not sorry. She's at, she is really upset with this whole situation. And Abram is basically saying, well, she's your hands do with her as you wish. He seems to be abandoning the whole situation also. It's as if the child does not really matter anymore in this situation. The clash between Abram's wife and Hagar has loomed so large that the very reason for the pregnancy in the first place has apparently all been, all but been forgotten. The only person who's really still concerned about it, apparently, of course, is Hagar. She's going to be very concerned about it after all. She is bearing the child. This, I think, is a clear illustration of the folly of trying to do God's will in human strength. And that seems to be the main theme that keeps running through this passage. Why is it even given to us here? Well, it's given to us for historical reasons, but it's given to us to teach, I think, at least that truth, that it's foolish for us to try to figure out in the flesh and in the strength of the flesh how we're going to do what God has explicitly said to do, rather than just casting ourselves upon the strength of God and saying, Lord, I don't know how to do it, but I trust you to do it through me. And of course, we know that the New Testament constantly teaches this truth. And yet, we discover in this case, and I think it's an example of what happens in every case, the ultimate result is disaster. <laughs> it was disastrous. But it's really amazing how gracious God is and how he's able to redeem disaster. As it says elsewhere, God is even able to take the wrath of man and turn it into his glory to accomplish his purpose because he is almighty. Well, in this particular passage, we're told that in the anger and frustration that Sari was experiencing, she treated Hagar harshly, it says. Harshly. Now, we might think that that means she just kind of spoke to her sharply. The word means a lot more than that. It's exactly the same word that's used later in Exodus in reference to how Egypt treated Israel. The oppression of Egypt against Israel, the same word is used. And you know that that was more than just harsh speaking. The implication here is that she used a lot more than words in dealing with Hagar. She apparently even used physical abuse against her handmaid. This was, this was her frustration was so great that it apparently revealed itself in this manner. This teaches us, of course, that when our ill-advised human plans begin to go awry, we have a tendency to turn on those even the closest to us and take out our wrath on them rather than doing the right thing and 
admitting failure to God and going to Him for forgiveness and cleansing. You'll notice they don't do that. At least there's no expression of that in this scripture. It doesn't say that they went before God and said, look, Lord, we're sorry for trying to play God in this situation, for trying to outguess you. And would you please forgive us and would you please straighten out this situation? There's no indication that they did that. Instead, they turned on Hagar and made her the scapegoat for all of their problems. She is responsible. It's her fault. She is the one who bears the child who's created all of this problem. And of course, we have to realize she was a servant. She was an Egyptian, and, and the passage makes it very clear that her being an Egyptian was, was pointed out very, it was sort of underscored here. She wasn't just an Egyptian maid. She was a maid who was an Egyptian, indicating that uh, her foreign birth was important in the attitude that these two had towards her at this particular time. And so she bore the brunt. Now, she's not totally innocent in this whole thing. Now, Hagar had, had no responsibility for the original problem, of course. But her reaction to her mistress was wrong. Her attitude towards Sari was not of God. To begin to despise her mistress more than ever before because she was able to bear a child, but her mistress was not. This was a wrong attitude. And, and, and this, of course, was engendering in her a sense of non-tranquility, I guess I could say. A haughtiness. But we have to remember that Abram and Sari were the two who were most responsible because they walked with God because Abraham, Abram had had visions from God himself. The word of God had come audibly to the ears of Abram. Therefore, he bore the greater responsibility because he had the greater amount of light. And I'm, cert I'm certain you and I have all heard messages on this, that we in America who have heard the word of God so much are far more responsible for God, before God than those Dani and uh, Uhunduni and other tribes in New Guinea who have barely begun to hear the word of God. And those tribes of people which have yet to hear the word will not be as responsible before God as we in this country who can see it on television, hear it over the airwaves, go to church and hear it, read it wherever we turn, the fact that you and I probably have at home many copies of the scripture, and we could have a hundred of them if we so chose, and yet so many people in the world don't even have a single word of scripture in their language. I mean, where is the greater responsibility going to lie? It's going to lie in the laps of us who know the most. And so it was with them. They were more responsible because they knew better. Hagar was not as responsible, but not guilt-free. <coughs> Let's read beginning verse 7 of chapter 16 of Genesis. Genesis 16, 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sari's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sari. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, 
I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Ber Lahiroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. The flight of Hagar was a serious flight. Uh, this was no, I'm going to just run away and they're going to come pleading after me kind of approach. She was serious. She was leaving and she was gone. She was headed for Egypt. That's the only place she knew. That's where she had grown up. That's where whatever family she had still lived. She had no idea, of course, whether she'd be accepted back into her family, but she was headed back towards Egypt. And the seriousness of her flight is illustrated by how far she had already traveled. Now think about it. This is a woman traveling all alone. A pregnant woman, probably relatively young, traveling all alone, alone on this route towards Egypt through an area that was increasingly becoming wilderness as she traveled further south and west. For a lone woman to be out on the road like that was an extremely rare phenomenon because it was very dangerous. She had covered about 75 miles in her flight towards Egypt. The scripture tells us that she was west of Kadesh, probably Kadesh Barnea, which was just south of the Negev, south of Beersheba. And it says that she was on the road to Shur, which means that she was not on the Via Maris. She was not on the coast road yet. She was on the route that came from Hebron down through Beersheba and then down through the Negev and would eventually connect over with the Via Maris over in the northern Sinai. And so she was headed over that way. And the northern part of the Sinai was called the Wilderness of Shur. She probably, probably had been walking something like three to four days before the Lord came to her. Now, we have to believe that her safety over those three to four days was brought by the Lord. Think about it for a minute. In those days, they rare, people rarely traveled alone. They almost always traveled in groups. They traveled in caravans. Uh, because uh, attacks upon such uh, moving people were very, very common. All kinds of thieves and brigands and so forth lived in the wilderness area, and they had hideouts, and they would come and they would strike, even against armed caravans sometimes. And for this woman to be walking out there all by herself, I mean, she was total, totally vulnerable. And so she had to have been protected by the Lord as he brought her this far. Now, to walk all the way from Hebron to Egypt would have been a difficult task for anybody, let alone an unescorted pregnant woman. 
And I think as she came to that well, I think she just collapsed beside the side of the well there, exhausted and totally discouraged. What was she going to do? She had left the only life she had known, the only security she'd had, and here she was out in the middle of the wilderness all by herself. And she was going to try to get clear to Egypt, and even then she didn't know, you know, did she even know how to find her family? Egypt's a big place. I mean, on the world, it's a small place. But if you're trying to walk into that place and find a certain family, it becomes a big place. And so I think she was basically depressed, <laughs> to put it in our modern terms. But notice God here. A miraculous event takes place. The angel of the Lord came to Hagar. It just, it just says it so simply here. Now, the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, and he said to Hagar, where have you come from, and where are you going? And you'll notice the angel of the Lord called her by name. He said, Hagar, sorry's made. Totally identifying her, illustrating, of course, the angel of the Lord had full knowledge of her. And so, obviously, the question that was asked was not asked for the information of the angel of the Lord. Now, who is this? What's interesting is that this is the very first time the word angel shows up in Scripture. Malak, which basically is defined as messenger. And it is the very first use of the term angel of the Lord. Now, this term shows up many other times in, in the Old Testament, angel of the Lord. And generally speaking, it seems clear from the context and from the wording of the various passages that this is a theophany. Let me just look at a couple of passages that illustrate this also. One of them, the very well-known passage in Exodus of the burning bush. Exodus 3.1 Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. Now, we always have to remember this wording is anthropomorphic. It's, it's here so that we can understand the flow of things. I mean, God didn't say, oh, look, he's coming. Oh, wonderful, now what will I do? God knew what he was going to do before it ever happened. That's why he was doing it. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. He said also, now this is the angel of the Lord speaking. I am the God of your father, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, I didn't write this on your outline, but let me also just read a few words from Judges 13. Another encounter, encounter you also probably know very well, uh, when Manoah and his wife uh, encountered the angel of the Lord before the birth of Samson. Uh, Judges 13, verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let me detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you, a baby goat. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, 
Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Hmm. Incomprehensible. Now, no angel has an incomprehensible name. So, the, so Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it on the rock. To whom? To the Lord. And he performed wonders. Who did? The angel of the Lord. Capital H. He performed wonders with Manoah and his wife while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah or his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So, generally speaking, when you see the phrase angel of the Lord, it is a theophany, an appearance of God, or a Christophany, possibly, an appearance specifically of the pre-incarnate Christ. The Lord here asks her, as I mentioned a minute ago, First of all, he calls her by name, and then he asks her a question to which he already, of course, knew the answers. He, he knew where she was coming from. He knew where she was intending to go. I mean, obviously, he knew all those things if he could identify her specifically. But why did he ask the question? Because he wanted her to think. He wanted her to think about her situation. He wanted her to analyze why was she there? What was the reason for her flight? What was the problem that she faced? He wanted her to verbalize her condition, to explain why she felt as she felt and what was the motive for what she was doing. And, and why does he do this? Because God knows far well than any modern uh, psychologist does that spiritual and emotional healing which we all are in need of, can only come when we honestly face who we are. What are our attitudes? What are the reasons why we do what we do? Who really are we anyway? And when we face those things and we recognize that we are fallen people in, a, in, you know, in eternal need of, of the forgiveness and, and of the washing of God, then God can begin to do the work in our hearts and minds that he wants to do. But if we constantly just say, oh, there's nothing wrong, you know, no problem at all, I can handle it, I can do it, don't bother me, go away, then, then we just aren't going to get the help we need. And of course, that doesn't really uh, go over real well in America, right? Because we're, we're a people of rugged individualism. We're Daniel Boone's. We're out there in the frontier, in the cutting edge of things, and we can handle it on our own. And one of the reasons the Americans revolted against Britain was the influence of this concept of frontier individualism. That we don't need the king, and we don't need parliament, and we don't need the protection of them. We can handle it on our own. And that has kind of impregnated our whole thinking. And, and today we have that attitude that uh, we are self-made people. And we can do this on our own. We don't really need God. It's nice to have him there to kind of as a safety net. But, but we don't need God to actually guide our every step. Because, you know, Lenin said that 
religion is the opiate of the people. You know, weak people need the crutch of God to lean on. Strong people, they don't need God. And, you know, it's hard to break through that and to realize we desperately need God. We can't even live till tomorrow without God and live a life that has any meaning at all. What is the purpose of life? You know, I don't know about you, but when I read the lives of modern entertainers and, and so forth, you just think how empty their lives have got to be. Sure, they have fame and, 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 and they have fortune and they have multiple affairs and all this kind of stuff, but do they have peace and joy? It sure doesn't seem like it. They don't have the basic uh, reality of what life is all about. You know, the poorest person who, who lives out in the edge of things, who has very little of this world's good, but has God and peace and contentment, has far more than, than the wealthy kings and queens of the world. And that's what God is driving at here when, when he comes to Hagar. He called her by name. He knew her. He knew her intimately. He knows you. He knows me intimately, as I've said before, that knowledge should be really satisfying to us. It helps us to know we can't play games with God. We can't try to hide things from God because He knows us all the way to the very depths of our soul far better than we know ourselves. He knows us, so why, play, why try to play a game with God? Just be open before Him, you know, just this is the way it is, God. As you've certainly heard many times, God would much rather have you say to his face what you really think, even if it doesn't sound very respectful, than to play games and pretend like you're pious and, uh, you know, hide the fact that inside there's resentment. Inside there's anger. And so he's dealing with Hagar to cut her open here, to let, it, let her pour it out what is really inside her, what's eating her. And he appeared to her when at her hour of greatest need. I don't think there was another hour in the life of Hagar where her need was greater than this hour. She was alone. She was forsaken. She was pregnant. She was in a wilderness. She had nothing. And God came to her at that very moment. And there's no evidence, of course, that he had ever come to her before or that she had ever even said his name or implied belief in him. We have no idea what her relationship to him was before this. But this was, to me, a powerful demonstration of how much he cared for this, this, this little human who was nobody in the world. As far as the world standards are concerned, who was she? I mean, she had been sold out of her own country, in effect, as, as a servant, and carried off to a strange land. And now she was even outcast from there. And who was she? She was the least of the least. And yet God came to her to show how much he cared for this abused and misused Egyptian. Now, she wasn't even called a Hebrew. She was an Egyptian. And what's interesting, too, is the fact, now, it, it could be that it just isn't expressed here by the author, or God didn't have it expressed here, but there, there seems to be no shock here. She doesn't, it doesn't say, and she was afraid and she hid behind a rock or something. It, there's no indication of that. He speaks and she responds, as if it were a natural thing, you know, to meet the angel of the Lord out in the middle of the wilderness someplace. I think the fact that she was not shocked illustrates at least in part 
how much Abram and Sari had actually lived God's presence as a reality so that she became comfortable with the fact that there really was a God who really spoke to human beings and it appeared to her master, I'm certain that she had probably heard him tell of the accounts of his encounter with God. And so she had heard these and so this was not totally foreign to her, you know, as her own personal experience it was foreign, but she at least had heard it before. You know, that's one of the purposes of scripture, is for us to vicariously learn many truths and not have to learn every one of them the hard way. And so, she does not seem to be shocked by this encounter. Whatever is the case, notice how God dealt with her. Gently, compassionately. He doesn't come and down and say, you little wimp, what are you running away for? Why don't you go back up there? Are you a coward or something? No, God doesn't deal with her in that way at all. He understands. He knows her better than she knows herself. And so, he is loving and kind in, as he deals with her. I mean, this is the God of the Old Testament. The same all-loving all Heavenly Father of the New Testament. There is no difference. He's a God of compassion, a God of love, a God of kindness, wherever he is encountered. Now, he does tell her to go back. This is the very first thing he says. Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. But he doesn't stop with that. He doesn't just say flat out, go, no, go back and, and tough it out. Doesn't say that without going on to explain what was going to transpire. And his implication was, and I will be with you. Now, he doesn't say that in, in just that many words. But the clear implication is, I will be with you as you go back and submit yourself to her authority. Now, her pregnancy by Abram had not been God's arrangement, but God gave her a gracious promise concerning this son. God could have said, and your son will be born dead. You will, you will naturally abort this child. Or, you know, he could have said all kinds of things, but he doesn't say that. You see, this was not God's plan in the sense of God's sovereign desire for them to operate he allowed it to take place because God gave to human beings the freedom of choice. But he said, you will have a son, and you will call his name Ishmael, which, mean God's, which means God hears. God hears. God had heard her cries of anguish as she rested beside that well. I heard and your son's going to forever bear the name that I heard you in your distress. It's not I heard because I heard Abram and Sari uh, saying they needed a son, therefore I gave you a child. No, it's not that I heard. It's I heard you in your distress and in your hour of greatest need. Now, you read on, you say, well, I'm not sure if I'd want to have this son some of us might say, I had a son like this. <laughs> God told Hagar that the son was going to grow up and be an anti-establishment, non-conforming rebel. Oh, good. <laughs> Just what I always wanted. <laughs> Could I have twins? You know. 
he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> well, the reference is to an onager, which was native to the wilderness of southwestern Asia, and <laughs> which is aptly described for us in Job. Let me just read a few verses from Job chapter 39, which describes <laughs> what this man's going to be like. I mean, not specifically, it's talking about the onager, but since he is compared to the onager. Job 39.5 Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. The shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture. He searches after every green thing. A wild animal, totally free. Now, most of us have the idea of, of a donkey as being this, you know, this dumb burro that plods along, you know, and uh, every once in a while gets stubborn, but is pretty much a dumb animal. Uh, the onager was not a dumb animal. The onager was wild and free, uh, something akin to the Mustang. I mean, of course, the Mustang was a horse, and the onager is not a horse, but is a donkey. But uh, very much similar in the sense of being a wild, free animal with, with great cunning and acumen and the ability to, to stay free out in the wilderness and to live in a place that most creatures found to be very, very barren. This metaphor implies that Ishmael was going to reject all limiting factors, which is what this passage in Job says about this animal. It, it scorns the tumult of the city, doesn't hear the shoutings of the driver. What does it mean? He's going to reject social institutions of that day, and he's going to spurn all kinds of political alliances. He will be a man unto himself, and his descendants will be a people unto themselves. Now, in, in verse 12, it's, it's, it says something that's kind of interesting. It says uh, at the very end, the last phrase, he will live to the east of his brothers. Now, it may be different in, in some of your translations because the word there, which is translated east, is the word panim, uh, which literally means in the face of and is often translated east and probably implies east in, in this particular passage. But there is a greater meaning here than east, and that is that his descendants would live independently of and probably belligerently toward all of the other descendants of Abraham. Oh. We looked at that way back when we studied the departure from the Garden of Eden. Remember? You may not remember that far back. It was a long time ago. But... Uh, there also, it says that they went to the east of the garden. The word is panim, which means in the face of. So the idea was they went to the east and also kind of, that is, uh, rejected or turned against God. And that was, of course, the reason for their original, uh, originally being cast out of the garden. And remember, uh, Cain went to the east, uh, carrying that same basic concept here. From this man Ishmael, would arise the fiercely independent Bedouin tribes which are ancestral to most of the modern Arabs. The Arabs today say that they are descended from Abraham. How? Through Ishmael. And they consider Ishmael to be the more important of the two brothers, the two sons, of, well, 
Abraham had more than two sons. But of these two sons of Abraham, these are considered to be the most important and Ishmael is considered to be the supreme one by the Arabs. Few other peoples in history, however, have been as divided and warlike and ungovernable as the Arabs have been throughout their history. Just study their history sometime. And you'll find that they have been wild, like the Oninger, untamable, and, and fiercely uh, competitive amongst themselves. Most of us know something about the story of Lawrence of, uh, of Arabia. How this, um, what was he, I've forgotten now, captain or major in the British army went in there to try to get the Arabs to cooperate together against the Turks so that the, they would help the British in overwhelming Turkey, which of course was the um, southernmost member of the Central Powers, Germany and uh, Austria-Hungary and Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire being the four Central Powers in World War I. The enemy, of course, as far as the Allies were concerned. And so he went in there to try to get these mutually uh, exclusive tribes of, of Bedouins to join together and to cooperate against the Turks. The Turks kept them divided because they naturally tended to be divided. And uh, this was a very, very difficult task and only partially accomplished by Lawrence of Arabia. And that's because it's in their character. Even though you have today the underlying uh, unifying force of Islam, you and I very well know how antagonistic various Arab groups are towards each other even today. And of course, whole Desert Storm was partly over the fact that one Arab group attacked another Arab group. And it, it was considered, you know, a terrible thing to do within the Islamic community, but huh, it's not new. It's something they've been doing, and there's been a, uh, this, this mutual antagonism has been going on ever since Ishmael was born. And ever since Isaac was born, an even greater and more bitter feud has been carried on. And that's the bitter feud between the Arabs and the Jews, the Hebrews, and which we see today in its modern manifestation of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And some say, well, how are we ever going to solve this problem? How are we going to get the, the Jews and the Arabs to sit down at the table and work out peace? The answer is, you aren't. It isn't going to happen short of the return of Christ. If we are believers in an, a literal earthly millennium, that's the only time that that's going to happen. Because humanly speaking, it just isn't going to happen. Because this, this, this antagonism was built in from the very beginning, from Ishmael and Isaac and, and their births. That was, it's been going on all these thousands of years, and it's not going to get healed just because a few other countries jump in and say, well, let's get together and work this out, you know. You give a little land here, and we'll give a little peace there. Right. It's a Band-Aid approach to cancer, you know. Well, the angel of the Lord made a great impression on Hagar. Huh, can you imagine? I mean, we have to think about it for a minute. When the presence of God is there, it's not just like talking to another person. There's an overwhelming sense of God. When he is there, you know he is there because of his great majesty and power and glory. And certainly she was just overwhelmed with the presence of God. And she responds and she calls him El Roy, 
the God who sees. Well, I think we'll, we better stop at this point. We'll pick up and look. Why did she call him that? And really, what is the upshot of her encounter with him there that day? <laughs>